offering to be able to be here and to share and to introduce our speaker, uh, and I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, Dick and I have talked before, and I don't really know when he started coming to meetings in Ashland. I think it was like nine or ten years ago. And uh, since then, he's brought to our area more speakers from northern Kentucky. And it's one thing when, you, when you're going to be somewhere where they are, you have to be real careful not to say anything offensive because these people from northern Kentucky travel in packs. <laughs> and so you have to be really careful. And uh, we're waiting for Dick to write a story for Grapevine, and he's going to take a picture. He comes down the AA highway, and he's going to take a picture of that sign and call it the AA Connection because we have quite a connection going between this area and Alexandria. I'll plug his home group for him so he won't have to. It's the big A, and I've had the privilege of being there. I was there last, uh, my husband and I were there last summer one evening and just went in and fit in and, and knew a bunch of people, and it was really great. Um, when I was asked to chair, I thought about two times that I've introduced Dick, uh, and he just politely reminded me of one of them. It was early on in, in uh, AA for me. And he spoke for me at Pathways on Greenup Avenue. And he didn't know it at the time, but I introduced him. I went into a blackout. And just as he was getting to this poem, I came out of the blackout and thanked him for speaking. And shortly thereafter, I asked him when he was going to come to Ashland and speak for us. <laughs> and he said, Carol, I did, <laughs> you know. And the other time that I introduced him was when he first started coming and I brought him home and I introduced him to my middle child. And she's my firecracker. And I said, Leanne, I said, this is Dick, and he's the pharmaceutical rep. And she said, what's that? I think she was around eight or nine. She said, what's that? And I said, well, he sells drugs. And she looked at him and said, good or bad. (laughs) (laughs) I won't take up any more of his time. He has taught me more about AA, not through what he said, but what I've seen him do. And I've learned so much about what I should do. You're watching Dick, and I'll give you the eight. Thank you, Carol, for for the introduction, and thanks to the committee for inviting me. And and I sure enjoyed all the speakers. Uh, It it was a great week. Sterling, thank you. That was a great message Friday night in Garland. And Kizzy, thank you. My sympathies are with you, hon. And, uh, of course, uh, we had uh, Peggy and and Larry. And it's just been a great weekend. It's been a great weekend, and I'm honored to be here. Uh, you know, all my life, all my life I wanted to fit in. I just wanted to be part of something, and, and I didn't. I just didn't fit in until I found alcohol. God, I arrived, you know. I arrived, and then my journey went. And I'm going to try to describe that journey of trying to fit in before and, be, and after Alcoholics Anonymous, because I didn't fit in when I got Alco- Alcoholics Anonymous either. I just was in Nowheresville, I guess. You know, so wanting to fit in, you know, knowing that. And early on in sobriety, my sponsor came up to me and he said, Dick, uh, you're going to give a lead. So he believed in, in action. And, and, you know, as much as I wanted to fit in, you know what my answer was? Hell no, I ain't giving a lead. You know, I'm not going to get in front of all these people and bear my soul. He says, no, you're going to do it. And I said, I'm not. He says, look, it's going to be easy for you. You're going to do it. And he kept on me for a week, you know. Finally, he came. He says, I finally got the perfect spot for you, Dick. Longview State Hospital. Now, down in Cincinnati, that's a local psychiatric hospital. 
And, you know, my mind thought, well, hell, it can't be that bad. What are those nuts going to know? You know, I'll go there and I'll, I'll tell my story and, and they'll never know what I'm talking about, you know. Then it'll be done. I'll never have to do this crap again, you know, because I still don't like giving a lead. <laughs> so we went over there and on the way over to my sponsor at the time, Tony, he says, now, Dick, he says, uh, you give a lead for, for two reasons. He says, now, first of all, you give a lead to help yourself. He says, that's the main reason you give a lead. He says, secondly, you give a lead uh, to help somebody else. You know, you just, and he said, in your case, I don't think you will, but, but you know, you might help somebody else. <laughs> He's preaching this thing all the way over there, and we get there, and, uh, and, and he starts preaching this thing in front of the psychiatrist who was the chairman there. And, and, uh, and he just happened to be an alcoholic also, and, and, and I guess the chairman heard this. And anyway, here in come the patients. In this place at the time, there was lots of patients back there at Roman Hospital or at the hospital there in Cincinnati, uh, Longview State Hospital. In the room, it looked like hundreds of people came in this great big room, and they had me on this raised podium. And I got up there, and I started my talk. And he's like, you know, the guy introduced me, and I, and I started, and I just barely into my talk. And the guy way in the back yells out, he says, get him out of here. It's the worst damn speaker we've ever had here. <laughs> I said, oh, man. I look at that psychiatrist, and he says, just keep talking a little bit, Dick. And, and I talked a little bit longer, and that guy starts yelling bad stuff. He says, look, I've, I've been here a while. He says, this guy stinks. Now get him the hell out of here. And I, and I looked at that psychiatrist, and it got worse. This guy started cussing. He'd have thrown tomatoes at me, I believe, if you know, if he had any. And I, and, and he finally said, "Get him out of here. He stinks." And I, I walked off the podium. And I went to that psychiatrist. And I, I quit. <laughs> he says, "You can't quit. This is an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. You know, you're up there to, to tell your story." I said, "No, I quit." He said, "Remember what your sponsor said." He says, "You're here for two reasons." He says, "One, you're here to help yourself." And I says, "Yeah, that's right." I says, "How in the hell can this possibly be helping me?" He said, you got a point there. <laughs> he said, but he says, you also might help somebody else. I says, who in the world could I possibly be helping? He said, see that guy in the back raising all the hell? Been here 17 years, and that's the first intelligent thing I've ever heard him say. <laughs> so so you, you never know when you might help somebody. You know, you never know. I was born in a little town, Rivertown, Dayton, Kentucky. Baby of eight kids, uh, six sisters. I was a weirdo, man. I mean, I, I was weird. I didn't fit in anywhere. I just, uh, and a great outgoing family, and, and there was me. And, and I just, I was a loner. I just was weird. I, I, I'd go off on a camp in the woods all summer long, all by myself. I'd sneak home, get supplies, go back up in the woods. I just didn't fit in. And when I was 13 years old, I went to a wedding reception. Uh, and, and there was beer there, you know, Catholic weddings, there's always beer and other stuff, and I drank. Only 13, but God, something happened. Something, and it says that in the book, you know, it says that in the book, you know, when, when an alcoholic takes a drink of alcohol, something happens. And something happened. God, I belonged. I, how I danced that night. I can't dance. Still can't dance, but I danced that night. And told the girls I love them, I still do that, but that, <laughs> that's another story, but, but, uh, I, uh, and, and I felt good. And I said, man, this is it. I'm going to drink any, any, any day gone chance I get, I'm going to drink. Alcohol is my answer. And I did. See, my parents died when I was real young. And, and I lived with a sister in, in the old homestead. And I could I could pretty well drink whenever I wanted to. Down in northern Kentucky, if you could get there and had money, you could drink. It was just that simple. I used to ride a bike to one place and hide it in the weeds and go drink, you know. And it was just that simple. So I drank. And I was industrious. I was able to make money. And I drank. I got out of high school when I was 16 years old. I was a real smart kid. And, and uh and I, I just had good genes, I guess. And I was a straight-A student, despite my drinking. But when I was 16 years old, I got out of school. I graduated from high school. And I was really a hopeless alcoholic at that time. I didn't know that at that time. 
But I said, I went to this Catholic school. All my life I went to a Catholic school. So I went to this priest when I graduated. I was 16 years old. And I, and I said, uh, you know, something's wrong. And I, and I was trying to tell him, I think, about my alcoholism. I didn't have a word for it, but something was wrong. Well, as a result of this conversation, and the alcohol thing never came out, I wound up in a seminary studying to be a Catholic priest. Uh, I joined this thing, and I'm there uh, several months, and some, some, some of the fellows in the room have been there, and they know what I'm talking about. They let me out for a weekend pass. And I came home like I was supposed to on the weekend, and I drank. I mean, I drank, and I came back to that seminary with St. Pius down in, in northern Kentucky, and I was just drunker than Hudow, and, and, and the guy in charge of the thing, of course, noticed this, and he reported me to the bishop, and the bishop looked at my records, he said, well, that kid's a straight-A student, you must be picking on him, you know, just leave him alone, you know. And they let me out every weekend for the next 13 months, and every weekend, as advertised, I came back drunk. I mean, every time I'd come back to that seminary drunk. Thirteenth month I was there, and the bishop was there with this, this priest in charge of the seminary. And the bishop obviously saw that the, the, that the guy in charge of the seminary wasn't exaggerating, and there I was drunk. One thing led to another, and I punched the bishop. Now, in the Catholic Church, you don't hit the, the bishop, you know. They threw me out of the seminary. Uh, they threw me out of the Catholic Church. I, I never really asked, you know. But, but, I remember I was in Indiana and Father Martin, you all heard Father Martin talk, and, and, and he was giving a talk, and I came, and during his talk he said, but at least I never punched the bishop. <laughs> and I went up to Father Martin after the talk, and I said, I did. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you said, you know, I did. <laughs> he, uh, he just didn't, he looked at me funny. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, alcohol starting to take stuff away. See, I, I don't think I was ever meant to be a Catholic priest, but, but it, it, but it took that away. I finagled a scholarship. See, the year before I took this test at Xavier University, and I was number one in the whole country in this test, and they gave me a four-year academic scholarship to their honors course over there. And I went back to them, and I said, God, I just gave a year of my life to the Catholic Church. Yeah, I'd honor that scholarship. I didn't tell them I was thrown out for being a drunk. You know, of course, why would I say something like that? And they honored a scholarship. So I went to Xavier University on a four-year academic scholarship. At the end of the first year, I made the dean's list. Well, kind of. The dean called me into his office to remind me I just flunked every course there, you know. I just laid around drunk all year. So I got thrown out of Xavier University and lost a four-year academic scholarship. Now, now alcohol's taking stuff away from me. Now it's hurting. But, but uh, I don't know, we, we always seem to be at the right place at the right time. I got a great job with General Electric, making more money than a dumb kid from Dayton, Kentucky I'd ever make, you know. And I'm making all kind of money and, and just raising hell and drinking all the time. And, I was there about eight months. I'm out drunk one night, and, and, and somebody said, I bet you, I don't even know what the bet was, 20 bucks, you can't chug a lug a quarter Jack Daniels. Well, I won that bet. I chugged a lug a quarter Jack Daniels, and I went into immediate blackout. Matter, I didn't go into a blackout. Hell, I went into a coma. You know, I was in a coma for five days. And uh, I was totally screwed up. Nor it, I was in the hospital eight months. Totally screwed up neurologically. Couldn't walk, couldn't talk, and took another year after that to, to recover, you know, to, to rehabilitation, therapy, you know. i to tell you something. A person like me shouldn't drink, you know. And it scared the hell out of me. See, I had a grand sponsor. He'd say, you know, sometimes you can be properly horrified. Horrified enough where you won't drink. So I didn't drink. You know, I didn't drink. Of course, I didn't drink. I was in a nice, easy detox. I was in a coma for five days. You know, they didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even know I was detoxing. After that, I was in a hospital. I didn't drink. I got out of there the next year. I didn't drink. I was properly horrified. 
I finagled another college scholarship to a little school down in northern Kentucky, and uh, and uh, I didn't drink. And I got out in three years on a four-year course by going to night school, summer, you know, summer school, and all the few little credits I carried from Xavier University. And I didn't drink because I was properly horrified. But I got out of there and I got married. Got a job as a social worker and uh, did that for a while and it came pretty clear that most of my clients were making more money than I was, <laughs> you know. And so I got out of the social work business and uh, and I started drinking somewhere along that line. Got a job as an insurance adjuster. Went to night law school. Uh, and got enough law in where, where I could be a claims manager for a major insurance company. But see, alcohol's starting to come back into my life. It's just starting to take over again. And in a drunken blitz, uh, made a great, big, bad decision with a, an attorney. We were both drunk when the jury was out on the big case, and they came out in for a lot more money than we could have settled the case for. Well, they were flying in from New York to fire me. And uh, I used to say I was never fired from a job. But see, back then, you could pick up a newspaper if you had a college degree, and you could get a job anywhere. And I saw a job in there. It said, wanted, pharmaceutical salesman. I said, damn, what a deal. I go out and sell drugs. I think I could do that, you know. The only requirement I had was, you know, to have a nice company car and run around, you know, and let me alone, you know. That, that was my only requirement. And I got this job selling pharmaceuticals. Went, went to work for a tiny, tiny little company. Everybody out by DuPont when I'm with, with them for a couple of years. I'm with DuPont. Eight years vested with DuPont. You don't leave a good job like that. And I'm drinking all the time. I mean, I'm drinking all the time. You don't leave a job with DuPont. But I saw a job in the paper wanted. Pharmaceutical salesman for a German company whose name I still can't pronounce, you know. Brand new to the United States. I leave DuPont to go. Yeah, sound like a hell of an idea to me at the time. So I left DuPont. Went to work for this tiny little German company. And, you know, again, I was at the right place at the right time. This company grew like Topsy, and I grew with the company, and they're now one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. At that time, they were massive worldwide. I didn't know it. They just weren't big in the United States. So I went to work for this company, and I traveled all over the United States, and I got all kind of promotions, and I made a hell of a lot more money than a dumb hillbilly kid ever should make. You know, I didn't know what to do with it. I, well, I, knew, I knew to drink with it, and that's all I did. That's all I did was drink. And, and you know, my life uh, is really a boring, you know, drinking's Alcohol isn't boring. Boring drinking. You know, it, it really is. I just get up and, and I wouldn't drink during the day. See, alcoholics did that. I didn't drink. I didn't drink till evening. Well, three o'clock was evening by my standards. <laughs> about three o'clock, uh, you know, but every day I didn't drink. But boy, about three o'clock, this damn shaking had started. You know, I mean, this terrible, terrible, my hands would be sweating so bad. And I used to smoke like four packs of cigarettes a day back then. And I'd start this damn shaking. And I couldn't even light a cigarette I was shaking so bad. And I'd run into the bar, you know, 3 o'clock, you know, because I wasn't going to drink. See, I, I knew I knew something was wrong with me. You know, I'm drinking a quart, two quarts of bourbon a day by this time. I mean, I'm drinking a lot of bourbon. And I knew something was wrong. And, and I'd be looking at myself every night in the mirror and I'd say, man, you you got to quit this stuff. You're killing you. you got three kids by now. you got three kids. You don't even know them. You know, you got a wife. You don't even know her. All you're doing is traveling around the country and drinking. I'm in a motel somewhere looking at that bottle, talking to it, just talking to that mirror. And I'm saying, you know, I ain't never going to drink again. Starting tomorrow. You know, say, starting tomorrow, that's it. I, I'm, after tomorrow, I'm done, you know. And I pour myself another drink and I'd pass out like I always did because that's what I did. I was a pass out drinker. I wake up the next morning just, to, you know, just awful. You know, anybody that drinks a couple quarts of bourbon don't feel good in the morning. And I thought, man, that was a great idea last night because I'm never going to drink again. And, and, and then come three o'clock, I'd shake and it'd start, you know. And I'd have to have a drink and I'd run to the nearest bar and I'd get a quick shot, quick beer. 
And you know, it wasn't very long that the, the sweating stopped a little bit, you know, and it wasn't very long and the shaking had stopped. And my great mind would say, wasn't that bad, was it? You know, it really wasn't that bad. And there I was, looking at myself in the mirror that night again, saying, man, look at you. you got kids at home. You're a drunk. Look at you. Do something about your drinking tomorrow. Five years I did that crap. That's boring drinking. That's that's terrible boring drinking. I'm not saying exciting stuff doesn't happen along the way. You know, we tend to, you know, garner excitement about us from time to time. I was in Scottsdale, Arizona at a national sales meeting. I was regional director for my company at the time. Had like uh, 80 guys under me. And my region was named Region of the Year. It, we had great people that, that worked for me. It wasn't me. And I was being honored. See, that day we were in Scottsdale and a thousand of us down there. And it was a, it was an off day. They gave us off, you know, and what do you do in Scottsdale? You go golfing, you know, or, or you, you know, you go horseback riding, you know, and at a beautiful resort town. I drank. That's what I did all day. You know, I drank. And that evening they had a cocktail party. And I put my three-piece suit on and I drank. And then they, they had a banquet honoring me. You know, they had a guy named Bill Glass. Uh, he's played for Cleveland Browns. He, he makes his money giving motivational speeches. And Bill, Bill gave a motivational speech at that talk. Well, see, I was drinking at the cocktail party, and we got up to the banquet. And by that time, all that's left is these cheap crafts of wine that they do. You know, they bring the booze, take the booze away from they give this. I hate wine. That's all that was left. So, so I'm drinking wine up there. And at the table, being honored, you know, in front of my whole sales force on a raised podium with the with the 80 guys that work for me, and the other thousand people were out there honoring me, you know. And Bill Glass is talking after the banquet. Hell, I fell asleep during Bill Glass's talk, and I'm up on a podium snoring and uh, laying down my head, and a big snore emanating, you know, from the thing, and and uh, and he must have gave a hell of a talk, because when he got done, uh, everybody got up and gave him a standing ovation. Well, it woke me up, so I woke up, and my feet were asleep, and I stood up, and my feet went out from under me, and I fell off the stage right in my vice president's lap. <laughs> Now, see, they notice shit like that. <laughs> I, w- I want to tell you that the skid down the corporate ladder is a lot quicker than the trudge up it. I mean, I got demotion after demotion after demotion. I wound up back in Cincinnati at an entry-level sales position. They didn't fire me because I, I, I helped build. I was like the 15th guy they hired with this company, and I helped build the company. I, I hired and trained and worked with just about every executive in the company. And they enabled me is what they did. They allowed me to just continue on my dance of death. You know, they enabled me. That's pretty well how it was. What happened? Uh, you know, somewhere along the line, uh, my wife started drinking. I, I've been married to you know, the same woman for, for many, many years. And she started drinking. See, I was so self-centered, so into me, I didn't see that Carol had a problem with alcohol. Just couldn't see it. Absolutely couldn't see it. But see, then it got to the, and she's taking pills, prescription stuff. Then it got to the point that even a blind person could see that, that probably my wife shouldn't drink. Because she's doing bizarre things. You know, she's catching kitchens on fire, you know, wrecking cars. And I guess one of her highlights was passing out in the IGA salad bar one day. You know, stuff like that that gathers attention. And uh, I uh, I finally got on her. I says, Carol, if you can't drink responsibly like me, <laughs> you shouldn't drink. You know, you shouldn't drink. You got to do something about that damn drinking. I'm drinking two quarts of bourbon a day, but, you know. But I'm responsible. I got a job. I'm working. And I got on her. I kept on her. And I came home from work one day. And she says, I saw this ad on television. Just drunk her in hell. See, she found that morning drink. I didn't. She'd get up in the morning with that shakes and, and she she drank. And, and and I came home from work that day and she is all blissed. And she says, I'm going to go to the care unit I heard about on television. It's down here in Falmouth, Kentucky. And I said, well, that's a great idea. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. See, I hadn't drank that day. <laughs> 
I don't know why. Probably broke, you know. I had some booze at home, and I probably came home to drink. So I sat there, and I said, well, why don't you get ready, and I'll run you on down there. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, she primped her hair and washed her hair and did her clothes. She wanted to look good when she went to the care unit. She still had a lot of pride, you know. And she drank coffee all day. She drank coffee, and, and you know, she didn't get ready till 11 o'clock at night. But see, by 11 o'clock at night, she's pretty straight. But see, I had to have something to do hanging out waiting for her, so I drank that quart of bourbon. And, and I got down that care unit, and I'm drunk, and she's sober. They had a dilemma on their hands. You know? <laughs> do you keep the drunk one, or do you keep the sober one? You know. Well, hell, I'm a salesman. <laughs> I walked. I walked, and she stayed. I, on the way back, I hit the nearest bar, the bar that I always bummed at, you know, and told them what a poor, pitiful deal it was to have an alcoholic for a wife. And they sat there and bought me drinks. I visited her every night in the care unit. I didn't miss a night. But I didn't miss a night stopping at that bar telling them what a rotten deal it was to have an alcoholic for a wife. You know, poor, pitiful me. It was awful. I'll never forget that. It was awful. Uh, she got out of the care unit, and then she wound up back in the care unit, and then she got out, and she wound up. She just couldn't stay sober. And uh, and finally, she was in a psychiatric hospital and came home. And she said to me one night, it was, uh, it was November the 19th, 1983, she said to me, uh, I don't have a chance, Dick, the way you are. You know, I don't have a chance. Were you drinking all the time? You got that bottle there, you know, and I'm sneaking it and you're, you know, you're marking it and I'm watering it down. And it was a circus. It was an absolute circus. And I, uh, she says, if you don't quit drinking, I don't know how I'm ever going to stop. And I promised her, I guess that night I was going to quit drinking on, it was a Bengal football day. It was a Sunday. And I got drunk like always, you know, and I don't know what time I passed out, whether it was before midnight or after midnight. So my sobriety date's an honest November the 20th, 1983. See, I, I promised her the next day I'd do something about my drinking. Well, I got up the next morning shaking like always and looked in the mirror. I weighed like 240 pounds at the time, 250 pounds. I had the reddest face you've ever seen in your life. I mean, blood red, blood red. And my hair was long and unkempt. And, and I didn't have many clothes left because I was making about a third of what I used to make. And I had bills like this, you know, I had every credit card maxed out, paying nothing but interest on it. So I couldn't afford clothes. And I looked like shit, you know, it was just that simple. I said, look at you, man. That's your problem. How can you go out and sell drugs looking like this? You know, look at you. <laughs> well, you could, uh, those kind. This kind. <laughs> this kind's a different story. You're supposed to look like something, you know. And I said, why not, why don't you go out and get a haircut, son? You know, cut that hair off. Look like something. Get yourself some new clothes. Lose some of that damn fight. Go on a diet. Lose some of that blubber. You know, look like somebody. Be somebody. Then you'll make all the money. And that's really your problem. You've just uh, got some financial problems. So any resolve about quitting drinking, totally gone. Totally gone. And I went downtown Cincinnati to a bargain basement, Shilatoes, looking for, on a, on a bargain rack. That's all I could afford. Looking for a sport coat. I bought a sport coat that day. And I kept that thing forever because that was my sobriety sport coat. But a guy taps me on the shoulder. There's a guy named Tony Daly, and I, I can break his anonymity because he just don't care. <laughs> you know, he don't care. He's been sober forever and, and uh, for, for several years. See, he was a pharmaceutical salesman, and I'd known Tony. Uh, and matter of fact, we drank together. You know, and we, we we worked for separate companies. We applied for the same company that I applied for. I got the job, and he didn't. But but I knew Tony, and Tony tapped me on the shoulder. And in fact, Tony had given the lead at my wife's very first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And Tony tapped me on the shoulder and he said, uh, how are you going? And I started to tell him about my wife and what a bad deal it was living with an alcoholic. He looked at me and he shook his head and he says, man, he says, I ain't talking about her. He says, look at you. Look at you. You smell like shit and, you know, you smell like a distillery and you look terrible. Why don't you do something about your own drinking? 
Well, he talked me into going to beginner's class that night at Oak Street, Cincinnati. Now, he said that I called him with every excuse in the book all day long, you know, trying to get out of it. But I showed up. I went to Oak Street. He was downstairs. Beginner's classes are upstairs. And after the beginner's class, he's waiting for me at the coffee bar. Well, back that time, uh, the coffee bar was the central office of, uh, of uh, Cincinnati AA, you know, back when they didn't divide the things so much and all the literature and everything was back there. But I came down the steps, you know, and, you know, sometimes your ego can help you. Because I came down them steps and Tony looked at me and he says, hey, you got any money on you, big fellow? And I always big fellow. Well, hell yeah, Tony. I got, what do you need? He said, I don't need anything. He said, but give Dick one of every book you got back there. I came out of that place with $60 worth of AA crap. I didn't want it. I mean, I didn't want this stuff. But I put it in the trunk of my car right where it belonged, you know. I mean, I didn't look at it. I just put it in the trunk of my car. And, uh, did read it. For the first six months I was in Alcoholics Anonymous, all I did was go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. I didn't, didn't I had a sponsor, didn't use him. I didn't read the book. I didn't do anything except go, I, I damn near lived in AA. I want to tell you, meetings will keep you dry. I didn't say sober. I said dry. And I lived at meetings. I was getting sober and my wife's all I was doing. Wasn't working any program, wasn't doing nothing. Wasn't doing nothing except going to meetings. And I was miserable. I wanted to drink every minute of my life. I was miserable for the first six months I was in AA. I was in Moorhead, Kentucky. And miserable like always. And, and, uh, and Moorhead had just gone wet. And man, everywhere you looked, there were, I was staying at the Holiday Inn there. And everywhere you looked, there was these red liquor signs. Oh, they surround, when, when the place goes wet, they surround the local Holiday Inn, you know, with liquor stores. I looked out at this one, it was a great big red one, it said liquor. And I said, man, here I come. I need a drink. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to drink. And then I thought, no, a meeting will help. If I drink, if I go to a meeting, I, I might not drink. But see, I'm more at Kentucky at that time. There wasn't a meeting on Monday night. Uh, but there was an Al-Anon meeting. So I figured, hell, it beats a blank. I'll go to an Al-Anon meeting, you know. And uh, and I went there. And, and I told them about me and, I, and, and poor pitiful me, you know. And they built the meeting around me. I said, man, I can't sleep. I haven't slept in six months, I told them. I think, you know, and of course, I knew that was not, not true, but, but uh, they believed it, you know. And, and I told them what a deal. My wife's catching the house on fire. You know, all that crap, you know, poor pitiful. And they built, they were nice. They built this meeting right around me. And poor pitiful me. Took came to this lady named Billy. Now, Billy, Billy was from Flemingsburg, Kentucky. Everybody in Billy's family was, was, was alcoholic except Billy. Most of them have since died of alcoholism. None of them ever found recovery. But Billy went down on And Billy was the healthiest woman I've ever known in my life. It came to Billy and she looked at me and she said, don't they have step three in Alcoholics Anonymous? I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. You know, I've been here. I've seen these things read or heard them read. But you know, I didn't hear it. I didn't know it. And I don't know about you, but I don't like to be one up by anybody. I went back to my room and I got the trunk of my car open. I started reading. And I read the big book, and I read the 12 and 12. And I realized God had never let go and let God. I'd never prayed in Alcoholics Anonymous. Never. I hit my knees and I prayed that night. Nothing's been the same since. Nothing's been the same since. I came back and I said to my sponsor, I want to belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, it's about time. He said, let's start working the program. Because he said, Dick, you know something? He says, Alcoholics Anonymous is about change. It's about changing the way you used to be. The person you used to be is going to drink again. This is about change here. We need to do something about that. So I started my journey in working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I call it my 3A program, a program of acceptance, action, and attitude. God, i got to accept every day that I'm an alcoholic. 
everything about it. I know early on, I, I used to think I was different. My case is different. I know Clancy always says that the words that kill more alcoholics than any others, as you don't understand, my case is different. And it wasn't. My sponsor made me do a first-step inventory. Look at all the good things that alcohol did for me. Uh, and, and then all the bad things, you know. And there were still some good things. Believe me, there were some good things that I still remembered. Alcohol made me feel like I belonged. Remember me talking about that earlier? Right now, I didn't feel like I belonged. I just didn't fit in. I was miserable. But see, the steps did that. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous filled that void. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that at the time. I had to take the action. And that's the next step. You know, action. Action's the magic word. Action is, is what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. You know, you do things, you get better. Whether you believe it or whether you don't, just do it. You know, action means going to meetings. Of Action means getting a home group. I've got a home group. I, somebody mentioned it earlier, Carol, did. it's a big A in Alexandria. It's the best group in the world. And there are several members of my group out there. And, and they know you there, like Kizzy was talking about. Those people know what's going on with you. I remember I went to a meeting one time and had the flu. And uh, and one of the members there, Mary, a very outspoken lady, and you know, she came up. She says, how you doing, Dick? And I oh, I'm just doing fine. She says, how come you look like shit then? <laughs> you know? they, they, they got that honesty about them. It's, it could have been something else. It could have been something really important at the time. You know, just the flu, but but they care. Your people in the home group care. Get into action, you know. I'm talking to Larry last night. This book, I carry this thing every time I give a lead. I believe in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. A good friend of mine down in Bardstown, Kentucky, made this cover for me, Billy. And uh, and, and I read something every every lead I give. Because I believe you, you know, I believe in it. And maybe, maybe some of you will be spurned to read the thing yourself if you're not reading it. Here's something I, I picked on, um, because, uh, uh, I, I, I sponsored a guy, uh, early on, uh, I met him, he was in a, he was an Indian. He was traveling through, through Cincinnati, he was eight years sober and he got drunk, his wife left him, and he was on a cross country drunk when I found him in a phone booth. He called central office and I got out there with my wife, made a 12 step call, got him into a long term VA program, and, his name was Jim. He was 32 years old. He was an American Indian from from, from Arizona, and uh, he was in this long-term program. Asked me to be a sponsor, and he was there about eight months. And he uh, he called one night, three o'clock. It wasn't night. It was three o'clock in the morning. And Jim uh, said, "You'll never guess where I'm at." And I said, "Jim, I don't know where you're at, but I know what you are. It's obvious he was drunk." He says, "I'm in that same phone booth you found me at, you know, three months ago." I was no kidding, Jim. I says, "If you're serious about this deal, why don't you find a quarter, go to sleep, and call me in the morning." Well, he bled to death in that phone booth that night. Uh, he, he just didn't accept the fact that he was alcoholic. And I blamed myself for that kid's death for a long time. And I knew, and I know now that it, it wasn't me, but, you know, it was, it was his time. It was Jim's time. So I kind of read this story because of Jim. And I'd been reading this story for uh, almost every lead I gave after that. And it's not a story. It's just a couple paragraphs. A little four-page story in the book. It's about a, a Canadian Indian. And it's written like an Indian talks. And it's still the native tongue. But see, the whole program of Alcoholics Anonymous is in the last two paragraphs of this story, and that's why I read it. And I also read it because of Jim, you know, the, the 32-year-old Indian fellow that, that didn't have to die. It was for years. Uh, I was at the World Conference in uh, Seattle about six years ago, and I sat down at an old-timers meeting. This little guy with beads all over him and medals all over him sat down, and his name was Maynard. And Maynard's the guy who wrote this story, and he's still alive, living up in Connecticut. But listen to what Maynard says. He says, I say... Just let it happen. This sober Indian say to sick red-eyed alcoholic who want good medicine. Put cork in bottle. No drunk hopeless if you want to follow a guide along right trail. Go to AA meetings. Listen, not just hear noise. 
get sponsor and phone numbers. Call friend and AA when bad thoughts come. Let group spirit of love and understanding protect you. Take my hand. Walk with me up 12 steps of AA to peace. To Indians, I say, don't be afraid to join AA. I once hear people say only Indians crazy when drunk. If so, AA full of Indians. Join the tribe. And, and that's, that's the name of the story, Join the Tribe. And doesn't that tell the whole story of Alcoholics Anonymous? So God, get into the book. Get into action and attitude. God, if I wasn't happy in Alcoholics Anonymous, I believe I'd be drunk. I believe I would. I, I demand. I think somebody said that yesterday. I demand. Larry said that last night. I demand to be happy, joyous, and free today. I demand that. I absolutely demand that. Today's reading was kind of funny in, in reflection. You know, talked about attitude. You know, it talked about attitude. I forget. What were the words of it? It said, uh, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. God, isn't that the truth? Taking over what alcohol used to do. Alcohol made my whole attitude and outlook change. And, I, and Alcoholics Anonymous has done the same thing. My whole attitude and outlook on life has changed. And that's the truth. Attitude's a doggone important. I used to, I used to always want to be happy. And I didn't know how. I used to want some of that thing called serenity. There was a millionaire one time, and he had he had all the money in the world. He wasn't happy, though. He, he was a multi-multi-millionaire, and he just wasn't happy. He didn't feel like he fit in, didn't feel like anything. He went to one of his advisors, and he says, man, he says, I am the most unhappy man. The money's not it. He said to his advisor, he says, I'd love to have some of this kind of thing they call serenity, this word bannered about, but I don't even have a clue what serenity is. And, and, and the advisor, a wise guy, apparently said, why don't you get an artist and have him draw you a, a painting of serenity. Give him a half a million dollars. Give him a year to do it. Then you'll know what it is. He said, even better, get two artists. Give them each half. You got all the money in the world. Give them each half a million dollars. And give them each a year to do it. And then call them in, look at the paintings, and then you'll have a real clear idea what serenity is. So he did that. You know, the year the guy, first guy unfurls his painting, it's a nice, quiet pond. Dove floating by, a duck, you know, just real glider, swan gliding across the pond, not a ripple. Little blue sky, one puffy cloud up there, and the millionaire said, "God, that's peaceful. I feel, I feel the serenity right to my bones." He says, "I know what it is. I've got it." He says, "In fact, I don't even need to see that other painting." And the guy said, "You paid a half million dollars for it. You got at least, you know, at least for the artist's sake, he took a year to do it. Look at it." So it's okay. Bring him in. So the the guy unfurls his painting. It's a painting of a waterfall. I mean, the water's crashing down, you know, and you can hear the noise coming off the canvas and, and, and the water's ripping away the dirt from the, from the, you know, from the, from the stream and the, the creek and the dirt's flying and, and the rapids and, and the, and the millionaire says, God, that's noise. You can hear the noise coming right off that can. That's, he says, that's, get it out of here. I don't want to see that thing. That's not serenity. And the artist said, would you take a closer look at my painting? And he did. And you know, on the bank, right next to the waterfall, there was a tree. And in that tree, there was a nest. And then Ness was a little mother robin feeding her young. At perfect peace and ease, despite that noise of the waterfall going about her. Now, isn't that the kind of serenity we need out there in that noisy world? I don't know about your world, but my world's noisy. <laughs> Sometimes they don't do what I want them to do out there. Damnedest thing. <laughs> Damnedest thing. That story meant so much to me. Yeah, that story meant so much to me. I remember that movie a few years ago, you know, where, where Dr. Bob was dying and, and he said to Bill, he said, Bill, because, you know, Bill was a very, very complicated, crazy man. And, and Bob was a very simple man. And Dr. Bob said, don't louse this thing up. Keep it simple. And, and you know, because Dr. Bob all through his life said, said every time he gave a talk, he said the same words. Trust God, clean house and help others. 
That's the whole program. It's such a simple program. I had a hell of a time trusting God when I got here. I thought, man, God ain't never going to forgive me for the crap I've done. You know, I don't know many people punched a bishop. I don't think he liked that. <laughs> you know, he ain't never going to forgive me. And I remember telling my sponsor that, and, he, and I said, God, God, he never. He says, "You arrogant sob to think God is not good enough to forgive you." You know, and, and, and I started hearing things. The guy Chuck C from the West Coast. God, I used to listen to his tapes and love him. I would have loved to have met the man. He said, "We're all just God's kids. We're all just God's kids in this thing together. We ought to help one another." We ought to just help one another. That meant a lot to me. You know, we're just God's kids and we ought to do something something about that. That's what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, you know. Heard a story that helped me a little bit about a little girl. She's in kindergarten one day. Drawing a picture and the teacher says, Mary, what are you doing? She says, I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher says, oh, you can't do that, Mary. Nobody knows what God looks like. She said, well, when I'm done, <laughs> see that the simple innocence of a child. Or do you think ministers know a lot about religion and th- they should shouldn't they you kids you wouldn't know they should know they should know a lot about it. There, there was a minister one time and uh he sat on his porch and, and the kids riding his tricycle down down this driveway and there's a hole in the driveway and the minister sitting up there the kid didn't see the minister but he hits this hole in the driveway bends his wheel you know and, and the wheel bends in half and he falls off you know the tricycle and he he falls off and he cuts his knee and you know when he cuts his arm and his pants are and he knows he's got new clothes on mama's going to get him his bike shot so he hits the ground and he yells out son of a bitch man that minister he runs down the driveway he says son terrible accident he says but that word's awful you don't need to use a word like that he says reverend if something like that ever what would you do he said i say something nice like praise god something like that you know the kid got a new bike he got new clothes He's there about three months later, down that same minister's driveway, but the minister didn't fix that hole in his driveway. Minister sitting on the porch, you know, same deal. He hits that hole, bends the wheel, falls off, his legs bleeding, his pants are cut, his arms bleeding. And he's just ready to say, and he looks up and catches that minister out of the corner of his eye, and he says, whoops, praise God. You know, just like that, that wheel straightened out in front of that minister's eyes, you know. And that, that the knee sewed up like magic, and the bleeding stopped, and the arm like a magic weaver came up, you know, and the minister was heard to say, son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. So you got to trust God. How oh, I better tell this story. I, uh, you, you know, uh, in, in the book, on, early on in the book, there's a little thing about a guy named Roland. Roland was a, a millionaire. He had all the money in the world. He couldn't stay sober. He couldn't stay sober. And Roland went to Switzerland to see the Dr. Young, the greatest psychiatrist in the world, to get him sober. And, and Dr. Young uh, worked his magic on him. And Roland got sober for a while. And then he got drunk. And he went back to Dr. Young. And then he got sober. And then he went back to Dr. Young. And he got drunk. And finally, Dr. Young looked at him. And he says, man, he says, an alcoholic of your type, there ain't any hope for you. He says, you can lock yourself up somewhere. Just go out and die. Because there there's no hope for an alcoholic of your type of description. And Roland looked at him. And he says, is there absolutely nothing? He says, well, Roland, every once in a while, every now and then, an alcoholic of your type and description has what they call a vital spiritual experience. Never has to drink again. And Roland says, I can do that. I, I'm a religious guy, and there's this new group, this Oxford movement going on, and I can go out there, and, you know, I can get sober. And the man did. He went out, you know, and he ran into Abby, and Abby ran into Bill, and, you know, that's kind of how Alcoholics Anonymous got started. But it got me thinking, uh, I wonder if anybody we've ever really knew and heard of had a big, boom, vital spiritual experience and never had to drink again before Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, and I love history, and I started looking. And there's a lot of guys. There's a guy the Catholics are trying to, a guy named Talbot, the Catholics are trying to make a saint out of right now. And But there was a guy up in England, and uh, he was a, 
the owner of uh, the son of a ship owner. And the guy was a slave trader. And this guy went out to sea with, with his on his boat. Well, he had learned in the trade. He was only 15 years old. And he went out to sea at a, at a very young young age. And he was out to sea and he got hooked on alcohol and got hooked on opium. And, and after a year or so, he was a hopeless opium head. And they abandoned him, which they did at that time on an island just to die, you know, even though he was the son of a wealthy ship owner. And he was on that island and they said he was so bad he was barking at the moon on all fours, you know, he was just totally lost. And somehow, some way, God touched that, that young fellow. His name was John Newton. And some of you may know the name and some of you may not, but, but John got out of there off that island and he wound up back in England somehow. And he got to England and, and he became a Calvinist priest. And after that, he started writing hymns that, that many of us have sung in church, but he wrote one hymn about his alcoholism. And I'll paraphrase the one stanza because you've all heard it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. So, you know, I guess you could recover with God's help. And that's what this is all about here. You know, we can't do it without God's help. Absolutely can't do it without God's help. So you got to trust God. Clean house. you got to get the garbage out of your life. You know, we had a guy down home with some of the old timers in northern Kentucky. His name was Jelly Roll. He'd say, raise the red flag, boys, and get the garbage out of your life. He meant work the steps. He meant, you know, look at yourself. You know, make sure you're alcoholic, you know, and, and get God to help you in this deal, you know. Get yourself a sponsor. You know, work the program. Do an inventory. And sit down and share that fifth step, that inventory with your sponsor. And as you do that, you can see the people you screwed over in your life. You know, as we did that with my sponsor, I did my fifth step. We went down the list and he said, well, you owe this person in the men's, you owe that person in the men's. And then later on, we, we, as it says in the 12 and 12, redoubled our efforts, you know, and looked at steps eight and nine. But we pretty well had my amends list at the end of that thing. But at the end of that talk, or that, that, that fifth step with my sponsor, he looked at me and he said, Dick, you got to go to your mother-in-law, Helen, and make amends. See, Helen was my mother-in-law and, and, and she was all through my fifth step. And I hated Helen, and Helen hated me. Just that damn simple. I mean, there was no love between either one of us. And, and anybody that knew me back then knows exactly what I'm talking about. And, and I went to Tony, and I and I said, I ain't going to do it. I said, I, that woman doesn't like me. And, I, and you know, and, and he says, you got to do it. See, my mother-in-law blamed me for my wife's alcoholism. My wife never drank before she met me. And uh, and she hated me. But I went to Helen, and, 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 I, and I made my amends all day. And at the end of the day, she says, that's kind of interesting, but, but please leave and don't ever come back. And I went back to Tony and I said, I'm done with the old broad. That's it, right? <laughs> he said, uh, no. He says, now you got to act like you meant those amends. I said, how in the hell am I going to do that? She don't want me in her house. He says, you'll see her again. Families are kind of like that. And I saw Helen from time to time. And I was nice to Helen. And, and, and you know, we started talking. And gradually a healing. It took a long time. Several years ago, she was in Florida, and, and she found out she had cancer while she was down there. She flying back to Cincinnati to, to have the surgery. You know, she called me rather than one of her own kids to pick her up at the airport. That much healing had taken place because she wanted to talk. And she had the surgery, and she had to have a colostomy bag, you know. And uh, she uh, had that, and about a year later, the, the bag ruptured. And she wound up back in the hospital. And she had to have more, even more painful surgery. You know, she had to have another colostomy bag. And anyway, she came home that night after after being from the hospital. And she called me. And she said, can, can you come right down, Dick? And I didn't even ask. I said, sure, I'll be right there, Helen. It's about 20 minutes away. And I went down and I said, what's wrong, Helen? She said, you know, I had the surgery. And she opened up her, her, her gown. And it was all stitches and clamps and bleeding. And, and there was a full colostomy bag. And you all know what a colostomy bag is, you know. 
And she used to look at this thing, it's full of dick, but look at all the clamps and stuff. She says, it's going to hurt and I'm afraid to take it off. She says, I know you're gentle, Dick. She says, I know you wouldn't hurt me. Would you please take that off? Don't sound like a great honor to take a bag off of an old lady, but God didn't that love. That lady loves me. That lady helped me so much in later life that I can't even begin to describe it. I can't even begin to describe it. And rather than I hate Helen and Helen hate me, it became I love Helen and Helen love me. Would never have happened. Would never have happened without making those amends. Uh, help others. Uh, Emerson said it best. He said the most beautiful compensation in life is that no man can help another without ultimately helping himself. Isn't that what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about? Got to give it away to keep it. I sponsor a lot of guys in Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe in sponsorship. You know, I believe in working with. This is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. One drunk talking to another drunk. That doggone simple. And I believe in. I sponsor a bunch of guys down home, and I love these guys. A couple of them are here in the audience today. Got another sponsor. Tim is my sponsor today, and he's in the audience. My Alanon sponsor, Nancy's out there. I go to Alanon also. I'm not ashamed of that. I love Alanon. I, I try to go there once a week, and it's a great program. It saved my sanity through a lot of things that happened in my life. Uh, what's it like today? Several years ago, um, I was in a real bad car wreck. I, uh, and uh, as a result of that, uh, I had to have a lot of surgeries, you know, back and uh, elbow and a lot of different surgeries. And at this time in my life, everything seemed to just come down on me at once. My boy was, uh, was drinking and he was diving. He tried to dive in a swimming pool with no water in it and broke his neck in three places. Uh, my daughter had married this guy who was a wife beater, and uh, he was she was just getting the hell beat out of him you know, regularly. As a result of that 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 marriage, she uh, she had a, a baby with cerebral palsy, uh, and uh, and uh, I was uh, I was in constant pain. Uh, I couldn't hardly walk. I couldn't hardly talk. Uh, my back was killing me. I was looking at surgery. I was afraid of it because of paralysis and. My whole life's just disintegrating in front of me. At about the same period of time, my wife returned to drink, and she'd been sober five years in Alcoholics Anonymous, and she returned to drinking. And I was in Portsmouth, Ohio. Somebody mentioned Portsmouth yesterday. I was in Portsmouth, Ohio at a Holiday Inn, and, and, and I took a shower, and I'm cussing God. I'm, call, I'm praying, but I'm cussing. I'm saying, man, look at you, God. You got me. My life's screwed up. I'm doing what I need to do. I'm working with drunks. You know, I'm a pretty good guy today, and my life is all screwed up, and I don't like it. I don't like a one damn bit. And I came out of the shower and, and the steam followed me out, you know. And I went to brush my hair and the mirror fogged up and it said across it, I love you. My dirty mind said, <laughs> some, some people had this room and they had you know, some lady or man expressing their endearing love. My dirty mind, you know. And uh, But the second line of that thing fogged up and said, I love you. And it said, God. Now see, I know some little fervent kid wrote that on there with his finger and I, I know some maid didn't do her job but I also know it was there for me to see when I needed to see it much like Larry's deal last night and Peggy's deal there aren't any accidents in this world in Alcoholics Anonymous you know it was there for me to see when I needed to see it and, and it helped it helped I had a, I had a back surgery and knee surgeries and all other kind of surgeries you can see I'm getting around pretty good but, but I had the back surgery and I came out and I was allergic to the anesthetic and I was dying on the recovery table. No blood pressure down to nothing. I said, we're losing him. And I'm wide awake. I'm laying on my belly and they're saying, I'm dying. And I can hear it. It was the damnedest experience I've ever had. I'm laying there and he's dying. And I, you know, and I, and I, well, I guess I am. And I really thought I was. And you know, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid at that moment to die. 
I'm not saying if it happened tonight, I wouldn't be afraid, but at that moment I wasn't. God, isn't that a gift? Another gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. My boy had surgery. A couple of guys I sponsored and went through that eight-hour operation, and uh, it came out fine. No paralysis whatsoever. He's a, he's a plumber by trade. Just built his own house. Uh, just totally remodeled my house. And he presented me with two wonderful grandkids, you know, and his wife. Uh, great kid, you know, great kid. Uh, my, uh, my daughter got rid of that jerk. You know, she got rid of him. I remember, I remember he came up to me one time when he was still around. He said, that alcoholics and I is a bunch of crap. It don't work. He says, sure as hell does save your damn life. Cause I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> So, he, uh, my little grandbaby, she's, she's seven years old today, little even seven years old today, and, and she, uh, God, she's so neat, she's walking with the aid of a walker now, she may walk one day, I don't know, doesn't matter, she don't care, God, she loves life, she's the neatest little girl in the world, so I've got these three great grandkids today. Uh, my wife never stopped drinking. It got painful. It got financially painful. It got emotionally painful. Uh, and she went down her, her way, you know. Several years back, uh, in, in November, I, uh, I just couldn't take the pain anymore. And we separated after 30 plus years of marriage. Uh, and, uh, we separated. The hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. But she was very, very violent and she was very, very, it was just an impossible situation, and I should have probably done it way, way before that. But I hung in as long as I thought I could, and I just couldn't take it anymore. And I walked out of it, didn't walk out of the marriage, but, but we separated, and she, she was in her own place, and I was in my own place. And February 21st, my daughter stopped by to see her that year, and uh, she was dead. She literally drank herself to death. She knew the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. She was... Uh, she knew the program of Alcoholics Anonymous better than I knew the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. She could quote this book verbatim. She blamed everybody for her alcoholism, like we all do. It's all your fault. It's all your fault out there. And I thought, man, she don't have a clue. That lady, even after she died, she never did get it. But I was going through her stuff, and she's got a book just like this. Nothing in it. Nothing. Except a rose, and this was written on the front cover I think she wrote this when she was down at Crystal's house. She was through about every treatment center there was. She wrote, people may not remember what you have said, but they will remember how you made them fear, feel. Give me flowers while I can see them. Say kind words while I can hear them. And it just says, little lady on the news. So she knew, but she couldn't get out of that downward spiral called alcoholism. She just couldn't break that spell. And I hear people come back and they say, well, I'm here again, you know, you know, and hopefully if I drink again, I'll get back. You might not. You might not. You know, God, when you're here, grab this damn thing and stay, you know, stay. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. If you don't get anything else out of this deal, know that. I love the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's, it's given me everything I've got today. I've got three kids. My kids, they, uh, they didn't know their daddy. They didn't have a clue who their daddy was. I wasn't I wasn't a daddy. I didn't beat them. I didn't do stuff like that. I gave them anything they wanted, but I wasn't there for them. 
I wasn't there for him. I was off doing my thing, drinking and ignoring him, you know, ignoring my little beautiful kids. I went to my daughter and made amends, uh, my middle daughter. And I, I said, Chrissy, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry. And, and after the talk, she said, Daddy, she says, I thought you didn't like me. <laughs> I thought you didn't like me. So there's more reasons to make amends just for yourself. She didn't know. And that little girl, every Thursday night, uh, we go out to eat with her, my wife and I. And every Sunday night, we uh, we go to an outline meeting together. Uh, she's a great kid. All three of my kids are great kids, and I got three great grandkids. I never stopped going to Al-Anon, and uh, a couple years ago, it'll be August, it'll be three years, I was at an Al-Anon meeting in the group I used to go to on Thursday night, and a lady was there with a funny accent, and she looked, she liked my legs, you know, I had shorts on, good tan, you know, and she liked my legs, and and there she sits. We got married last September. <laughs> Her name's Marlene, and, and God, I love that lady. I love that lady, huh? My grandkids call her Nana, and they love her. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me so doggone many things. It's given me a God of my understanding, you know. It's given me a beautiful wife and great kids that love me and great grandkids that love me. It's given me back me. It's given me back me. I'm going to close this thing. Uh, and again, I had a really, really great time here. And uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you all for your hospitality. And uh, I found this in a somewhere. Bill Wilson wrote this, and I've never heard it before. Our co-founder Bill Wilson was once asked, "Should AA, if a hostile world should happen, you know, a dictatorship come over, communism creep in, would AA survive?" Bill's reply was, "I think you need to have no fear. Let the cold winds blow if they must, and the night darken. You and I know a land where the light is bright and there is stillness of the spirit, a land we could live in for as long as we wish." it exists only in our hearts. It's a land called Alcoholics Anonymous. The Lord, I believe, created A for us. May it be his will that we keep it safe. I'm Dick Hedger. I'm an alcoholic. While Dick is unwrapping his gift, I'll go ahead and read the closing. Uh, in closing, I would like to say that the opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them what you liked. Take what you like and leave the rest. The things you have heard were spoken in confidence and should be treated as confidential. Keep them within the walls of this room and the confines of your mind. A few special words to those of you who haven't been with us long. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If you try to keep an open mind, you will find help. You will come to realize that there is no situation too difficult to be bettered and no unhappiness too great to be lessened. We aren't perfect. The welcome we give you may not show the warmth we have in our hearts for you. After a while, you'll discover that though you may not like all of us, You'll love us in a very special way, the same way we already love you. Talk to each other, reason things out with someone else, but let there be no gossip or criticism of one another. Instead, let the understanding, love, and peace of the program grow in you one day at a time. Will all of those who care to join me in the Lord's Prayer? <laughs>